Welcome to Deepak Casts, a podcast series from the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. My name is Ted Barron. I'm the executive director of the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. We are exploring the history of indie film for this series as we're taking a closer look at some of the major works from the history of American independent cinema. This week, we're headed to the Bay Area to check out the 1982 film Chan is Missing, which was the solo directorial debut of filmmaker Wayne Wang. So we've taken up some questions around race and ethnicity in indie film over the last couple of weeks, uh, most notably with Charles Burnett's film Killer of Sheep. Um, when, we t- when we address questions of race and ethnicity in indie film, the focus typically goes first to, toward the black experience and perhaps followed by uh, the Latino experience. Um, But this week, we're going to be looking at a film that puts the Asian-American experience um, at the center of our concerns, uh, specifically looking at the dynamics of an immigrant community. And I guess maybe the challenge is is to think about the moment at which uh, Asian-American identity was even more marginalized than it is today. Um, Representations were extremely limited and people's understanding of what it's like both, you know, in terms of even the distinctions between uh, people who identify as Asian in terms of Asian immigrants versus Asian Americans um, and some of the dynamics of that, which are uh, which play out really in really interesting ways in, in Wayne Wang's work. So Wayne Wang was actually born and raised in Hong Kong and, and didn't move to the U.S. until he was 17 years old. His parents wanted him to go to medical school. Um, so they thought the best thing for him to do was to get uh, to get to the U.S. and then he could apply to uh, to colleges and universities. But uh, he had other plans and decided to study film and television at what was then known as the California College of Arts and Crafts in Oakland, uh, which is now uh, simply known as the California College of the Arts in San Francisco, um, and c- exposed himself to a lot of different uh, kinds of work, um, but in particular kind of developing an interest in uh, both documentary film as well as, uh, as, well as narrative film. Um, but for uh, after college, he spent several years as a teacher, primarily teaching English as a second language to Chinese immigrants, which helped him to kind of uh, get to know people within um, San Francisco's Chinatown neighborhood um, and uh, some of the unique characters who uh, who occupy the neighborhood uh, would would provide a source of creative inspiration when it came time to make his first uh, solo film. But uh, that, but that was preceded. Uh, Chan is missing. That is was preceded by what was what ultimately was um, Wang's first effort in filmmaking, which was in 1979. He co-directed a film titled "A Man, a Woman, and a Killer" with filmmaker Rick Schmidt, which was largely improvisational, made on a, a, a next to nothing budget. Um, a film that really didn't go anywhere in terms of exposure, but but gave Wang the chance to um, kind of take a leadership role as a director um, and um, experiment with some with some different kinds of techniques. Um, so as he evolves as a filmmaker, you know, these questions uh, not only are about the formal process, but also thinking back to the content of his work, um, often turn to 
issues of representation. If the LA Rebellion, which we talked about in our previous episode uh, or in a previous episode about um, Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep, if that came out of a moment in which black artists were responding to uh, representations of African-American society that were problematic, uh, Wayne Wang is coming of age at a time when Asian American representation is is practically non-existent. Um, so there aren't. It's not as if he's. Uh, uh, th- there's a lot of points of reference that he's he's trying to answer to, perhaps in the same way that um, that somebody like Charles Burnett was. I mean, even in his first film with Rick Schmidt, there's no significant Asian content. It really was a, was a piece where he could kind of develop some interesting kind of formal techniques uh, which come to play when, uh, when he goes to make his – when he goes out on his own to make Chan is Missing. So the title of the film uh, is intended to be a reference to one of the few reference uh, – uh, representations of Asian American uh, culture in, uh, in Hollywood and that would be the Charlie Chan film series uh, which was incredibly popular in the 1930s and 1940s but deeply problematic um, in large part because – uh, in most of these films, uh, you saw white actors um, in a, a kind of yellow face portraying the titular Hawaiian detective. Um, and this is something, you know, you would think, okay, this is a product of its time. It's the 1930s and 1940s. But they continued to make these films as late as 1981. Um, my first experience of, of uh, the Charlie Chan films was Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen, which uh, starred the great Peter Ustinov. Um, which, you know, a film that I saw on cable television when I was a kid. And even at that point, I could tell something was off when, with having this sort of great, you know, British uh, stage and screen actor um, portraying, uh, portraying a role in this, in this way. Um, so, and fortunately, that marked the end of, of that cycle of, of Charlie Chan films. Uh, but Chan is Missing would ultimately go on to have, uh, we could say, a much more significant impact uh, in terms of Asian American representation. Uh, Wang had a budget of a very, a very low budget, only $20,000 to make the film. And his original conception for the piece was to, uh, was to go a more experimental route. He was really fascinated with um, the Soviet montage movement. Uh, in particular, the work of filmmakers like Sergei Eisenstein. And so what he wanted to uh, present was uh, a sort of a portrait of life in Chinatown in San Francisco, um, which largely consisted of uh, images, a lot of still images, but um, images that would be kind of edited together in a compelling way and not even use um, uh, elements of sound or at least uh, direct sound in, in uh, combining with the images. But as the project developed and as he consulted with kind of a community of uh, filmmakers who were emerging at the time, and it should be noted that there is a really strong um, Asian American arts movement in the Bay Area um, developing uh, from the late 1960s up through the 1980s. Um, that the feedback he got and kind of as, as his own ideas evolved about the project, he decided that um, it, should be, it should be a narrative film. But uh, narrative in the most minimal way possible. Um, if you look at the plot of the film, it's about as bare bones as it gets. It's a story about two cabbies who uh, search for 
this guy named Chan, um, referenced in the title of the film, who uh, who owes the money, um, and and every effort they make to try to find them seems to go nowhere. Um, but the search for Chan ultimately becomes secondary to what's just a really wonderful observational slice of life in in Chinatown, and all of these. Uh, really interesting characters they they encounter along the way. Most of these characters are played by people that Wang had come to know in Chinatown, non-professionals, uh, not even not even amateur actors, but people who had you know really no aspirations to acting. Um, who would play kind of variations on their on their real life uh, personas, at least at least as much as uh, you know Wang knew them. So there is this. Um, this is one of these films that kind of has this intersection of uh, with a kind of realism and using techniques that perhaps uh, we can trace back to uh, examples of Italian neorealism in the 1940s. So for a lot of the films that uh, that I'm discussing in this series. Um, I'm I'm referencing back to films that I personally have seen many times before. Um, for in prep in preparing for this for this series, uh, Chan is Missing was a film that that I had missed over the years. It was a film that I had never had an opportunity to see, so you know watched it specifically, um, you know for for this film series. Um, and as I experience this film, what, I'm, what I find so remarkable about it, which is still a relatively new experience, is that it does, it fits so nicely with the other works in the way that um, it establishes a world for its characters that just feels, you know, genuinely lived in and naturalistic. Um, you know, I, I particularly enjoy these films where we get to hang out with people in a place that feels, you know, true to the characters. Um, these are not necessarily the most decorous spaces, but if but they certainly connect you with an authentic sense of place, which gives you a very kind of a sense of authenticity in terms of the characters that you experience and um, and you know kind of what they go through over the course over the course of the film. Um, so while the direct influences of uh, while they're while they're hard to trace, you know, in terms of you know what's the or I should say direct impact. Um, because, you know, uh, Wang is someone who draws from a lot of different influences as a filmmaker. But in terms of what he provides as a source of inspiration for other work, it, it can be argued that, you know, his film, along with um, the films that he followed up with in the 1980s, films like uh, Dim Sum and Eat a Bowl of Tea, both critically acclaimed uh, comedies, uh, were kind of a, a source of inspiration for a wave of Asian-American film and video production that continued throughout the 1980s. Um, this includes uh, the extraordinary documentary Who Killed Vincent Chin, uh, co-directed by uh, Christine Choi and Rene Tajima-Pena, and um, A Great Wall, which was directed by Peter Wang, who actually plays the singing cook in Chan is Missing, one of the, one of the many eccentric characters that, uh, that uh, we meet along the way uh, with, with, uh, in the experience of this film. So, um, uh, this, but this is a moment in which, in terms of indie film, Asian Americans are starting to gain more prominence and, and find more opportunities. Um, you know, this, this, this goes not only from East Asian American, uh, people of East Asian American or East Asian heritage, but also South Asian uh, filmmakers like Mira Nair, who um, directs her first narrative feature after she had directed a few um, documentary films, uh, the, the Great Salam Bombay, which comes out in the late 1980s. 
Um, and it's a moment where we're starting to just see just a much more diverse uh, period of representation before um, we go into a phase in which the industry itself of independent cinema becomes more of an industry and not something that's uh, that's quite so um, kind of specific and niche in terms of audiences. Um, Wang himself uh, finds great success in his career. Um, he works on uh, he 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 works on studio films such as The Joy Luck Club, um, Made in Manhattan, which was a, a comedy with uh, Jennifer Lopez, uh, Last Holiday with Queen Latifah. Really, you know, sort of mainstream kind of romantic comedies. Um, a, a, an underrated family film uh, that he directed is a great one is uh, Because of Win Dixie. Um, but he also would con- would continue to direct indie projects or films that had more of an indie flair like uh, 1994's Smoke and uh, the follow-up film Blue in the Face, uh, which are kind of uh, representative of the peak of uh, Miramax and its, uh, its great successes in the 1990s. Um, but his more recent work is tur- in his more recent work he's turned his lens back on Asian and Asian American subjects um, and taking and actually going back to some of his original ideas about more experimental formal approaches that that were such a that were so important to him when he was conceiving of Chan is missing. So um, his he's he's kind of taking a lot more chances. Maybe maybe with that uh, kind of having having broken through with uh, within. The Hollywood system uh, starting to get back to the things that really that really matter to him more. Um, so it's you know it's it's pretty obvious to say that the presence of Asians and Asian Americans since nineteen since the nineteen eighties in Hollywood cinema has grown exponentially. Um, you know, and was Chan is missing the spark for that? That can be argued. Um, but if we actually look at the lasting impact of the kind of film. Uh, that uh, Wayne Wang was making and the kinds of films that he was making throughout the 1980s. Um, probably, you know, one of the best spiritual airs is the great 2000 uh, film from the, from 2020 um, by uh, Korean-American director Lee Isaac Chung, and that's the film Minari, uh, which combines uh, comedic and dramatic, dramatic elements in the way that it, it reflects on the experiences of an immigrant family, but but in a sense, trying to be uh, authentic to, you know, what people, the challenges people face in their lives, but also um, trying to do so in a way that doesn't exploit them for for melodrama or other purposes. So, uh, a great film to check out. Chan is missing. Um, we will continue our series uh, next with our next episode coming up soon. <laughs>